Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, welcome everyone to the Jesus Collective podcast. I'm Shauna Boren, and we've also got Paul Walker here. Hello, and, dear and listener. In a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paul is so excited. He's so jolly. He can't wait to chat um, today with our guest. Megan Larissa Good. That is just a beautiful name that just rolls off the tongue. I love it. Megan Larissa Good. You're going to hear from her today, but right now we just want to say welcome, Megan. Thank you for being here. So delighted to talk with you guys. So Megan is here for a very special purpose. We, within this podcast, are starting a new series, and uh, it is called A New Reformation. And you will understand as the conversation goes on today, you will understand why it is Megan that is kicking us off uh, for this series. But first, Megan, if you could, for those out there who are listening and are listening audience who maybe don't know you, um, could you tell us all a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I am living in Phoenix, Arizona, land of the scorpion and the cacti. <laughs> um, I'm the lead pastor of Trinity Mennonite Church there in Phoenix. Um, a while back, I wrote a book called The Bible Unwrapped, talking about what it means to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, um, which is one of the things I'm passionate about. And currently, I'm also serving as the chair of the Theology Circle in the Jesus Collective. So the chair of the Theology Circle uh, with Jesus Collective, I would love for you to unpack exactly what the Theology Circle is and what, what's its purpose and, and how it is that you're working with them. Well, the Theology Circle is basically a group of leaders and thinkers, um, a lot of us work for churches, but some more in academic settings, who are getting together to kind of try to put our finger on language for a new movement that we think is emerging within Christianity. There's a movement going on, we talk about a lot of deconstruction, but mm. this the conversation we're having in the theology circle is really the work of reconstruction. Like what is what is a new kind of Jesus-shaped vision um, for what is at the heart of Christianity? Um, so our circle is gathering to kind of have conversations around that, try to put language to, to the movement we see happening, um, but also to find ways to support and equip leaders who are experiencing a kind of reconversion in their own vision of God and Jesus and the church and, and to help them talk to their churches about that shift and, and create a kind of on the ground change that helps a um, richer, more authentic version of, of Christianity to emerge for generations in the future. So our, our goal is, is to both call out this movement, but also help equip leaders to make it in themselves and with their communities. Okay, I have so many follow-up questions to that because that's like you just unpacked <laughs> just a bombshell of so many things. Um, I guess my first curiosity here is, okay, Reformation, a, a new thing that's going on. How how did you get to this place? Like whether you personally or you collectively around this circle, like how did you say, yeah, something has shifted? Because, you know, it's one thing to say like, ah, you know, we added a an electric guitar, you know, like, 30 years ago when we were all doing the worship wars as churches. That's way too young. I'm way too young for that. But I've heard horror stories from those days. <laughs> this is different than that. Like, this is different than just stylistically. What you're describing is like a whole new vision and a new approach. How did you land here? I, I wouldn't speak for the whole group because I, I think everyone who's on this journey has their own story that, of kind of how this came into their awareness that there is a need for a shift. Um, I will say for myself, I have been educated and worked in evangelical communities and churches, in mainline communities and churches, and in Anabaptist communities and churches. And uh, like each, one of everything there. One of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and each one of them has their own story, their own trajectory, but is in its own way in a time of kind of intense upheaval <laughs> with mm. a, a lot of questions emerging and as I would kind of see it, hitting some dead end roads <laughs> and asking, like, once you hit a wall. 
Um, how did you get here? And, and what would it mean to kind of turn and recalibrate? Um, mm. So I, I think I, I've been aware for a while that that was developing. It's been a lot of years that a lot of us have been hearing questions and murmurings and, and people feeling deep uncertainties maybe in, in their own experiences of faith. But the last few years, the experience of the last few years feels like it's accelerated that so intensely. I wonder what happened in the last few years. I, know. I don't know. Like what <laughs> could have happened? Something going on? I don't Some sort of lockdown? what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, Something we, happened in your state? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and none of us can escape that, that term deconstruction right now. It's just mm. everywhere, right? People everywhere in all different traditions rethinking <laughs> what they thought mm. before. Um, so I, I don't think it's coming from the exact same place because people, depending on where you started, you have different things to rethink, but it's happening mm -hmm. at such a colossal scale that I, I think it invites a lot of questions of <laughs> like, even if we're beginning from different directions, is it possible that these questions, the answers to these questions, the rethinking of these could lead us back toward a bigger common stream? or a bigger mm -hmm. common story. Um, so let's kind of start to hone in on the reason why you're here. I, I feel like we can learn so much. Um, doesn't matter what we'd ask you. I feel like we can learn from whatever you would have to say. But the reason why you're here is a, a document that the Jesus, um, Jesus Collective Theology Circle worked on over the last several months, and it's Markers of a New Reformation. But before we get into the details of that document, my question for you is, what exactly, how would you describe a reformation? And do you think that we're currently in one? I mean, very briefly, I would, I would describe a reformation as a period of recalibration or course correction. Yeah. Um, you know, human beings, if we live long enough, we tend to have these periodic crises in our lives where we're suddenly questioning, like, have I, have I drifted off the purpose or, or the values that I hold? And if, if human beings experience that, even in a few decades of life, you, you better believe that institutions that last thousands yeah. of years experience mm -hmm. drift and from time to time have to ask themselves how have we drifted off course and, and what would it take for us to refine the the foundation of our story so i i, I see that process of reformation as as a process of life <laughs> um continually you know it has to happen from time to time as we experience that drift so 500 years ago famously the church went it, uh, through a period it was experiencing a lot of that um and I, I think there are signs, perhaps, that we are we are in a similar time once again of needing to refine that that foundation that we were always standing on. Mm. So, like, I've come across like I, I'm not sure if you have as well, but like the work of Phyllis Tickle, who once suggested that like it seems the cycle that you're describing, she suggested it happened every 500 years or so that Christianity would go through this great upheaval and it would then have to re-explore recontextualize it would have to uh, almost recenter its values and and very much the luther and later the anabaptists that came out of that it was a radical re-engagement with scripture apart from some of the papal authority and nationalistic structures although luther ultimately caved and became kind of more more entrenched in the german context there uh, as some people will and that's a whole other podcast um, but i'm curious um as you've seen this pattern at work how would how would you describe what may be happening here in this if 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 luther's whole whole engagement was you know working against the context of of purgatory of papal structures of i mean it's a lot to unpack it, it's not just one thing do you have some inkling of of what's causing this i mean you you mentioned deconstruction but what's even leading to that what, what's that work that we're at this place in history i mean i would say in a in a big scale you can talk about natural drift drift that just happens by existing right that there are there are specifics there are particular ways that any time in history one thought follows another thought and you get off course. Um, but there are perhaps some common parallels that lead to periods of intense crisis like we are in. 
Um, one of them, one of the things we know about the Great Reformation 500 years ago was that it was partially precipitated by a change in technology. Mm. Um, the, the invention of the printing press suddenly exposed people to ideas they'd never heard before, right? And, and so enter the, entering this new marketplace of ideas was a kind of unprecedented phenomenon that really disrupted people's kind of village one priest shaped vision of God. Now, it's, it's almost shocking how parallel that feels to our I, I was going to say, here we are. I'm in Winnipeg. Shauna's in, in St. Paul's, Minnesota. Minnesota, Minnesota. And there you are in Arizona. And I'm just laughing that like, yeah, it's a similar, it's a similar reframe. Like it's that drastic, the way we can reach into each other's lives. Right. Well, and you guys are leaders. I'm sure you've experienced no one is just taking your word for it anymore because you, oh, no. you happen to be there. Right? What people trust pastors? <laughs> <laughs> Like whatever people are going to believe has to be negotiated in a, in a much broader frame and a broader stream mm. than in the past. Um, it, so that's like one, one kind of key component you've named is like, yeah, I think the way we're communicating this digital um, reformation we're in, uh, some people call it a digital Babylon where like even the communities and the information that we find is like shaped by an algorithm shaped by our own participation. It's there's all sorts of interesting offshoots there. Is there anything else going on in our secular context or even the church context that you think is precipitating and adding? Cause that that's one layer. Is there some additional ones? I mean, two major threads in addition to that come to mind for me. Um, One is that the, at the time the last reformation occurred, science wasn't a formal thing yet. And we've gone through a couple of centuries now of, of the development of this thing we call science, mm. um, which involves an exploration of, of ways of thinking and learning and how we understand knowledge. Um, and I, I think that the church has struggled and grappled with different different ways of how do we how do we hold the different kinds of knowing? <laughs> like mm. what what ways are there to know what is knowledge? Um, what is the relationship of, for example, sacred text to nature itself? So there have been some really big questions that I, I think have deeply unsettled people um, as they've as they rippled through culture. And, and even people of faith in the most kind of isolated enclaves have trouble avoiding the, the ripple effects of mm. those questions. And the, I think that the sense of uncertainty that, that has emerged from that. And that for me, I guess, would be tied to the third thread, which is is related to that, but broader, which I would describe as a crisis of authority. Mm. Um, yeah. In the first Reformation period, as you described to Paul, you, you have a situation where there's a real crisis around papal authority. You have multiple people claiming to pope and be able to tell people what to do. And there are suddenly these questions like, who are you to tell me this? And where did, where did this idea come from? So, so there, there was a sense of brewing crisis beneath the idea of the Pope holding authority. Now, the answer during the Great Reformation that most Protestants famously know is scripture alone, right? Mm. Scripture is, is the authority that's going to, to tell us how to navigate this. We've had about 500 years to play out that answer. And I think a lot of questions have emerged around the answer that was formulated during that great reformation. Um, it, it turns out that if you give a hundred people the scripture, they'll come up with a hundred different ideas of how the pieces fit together. Um, so that idea of scripture alone seems really solid, but leaves practical difficulties. So, so that, that big question of where is authority held? How is it held in the Christian tradition? I, I think we're reaching a real crisis point of having mm. to ask, is there a fresh way to talk about that? Um, because, you know, we, we've kind of played out the road that we were on and it didn't get us all the way to where we were trying to go. So is there a, is there a better formulation of Christian authority and, and how would we think about that? Thank you, Megan. Um, and so my yeah, those question are so, is, yeah, so good. yeah, no, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was just going to say that, on you guys, Yeah. Yeah. Let me post this to that for a <laughs> second. Authority, Shana, Paul, tell us. Yeah. Cause you're right. Like we, we essentially went to a paper Pope and then we discovered like two denominations, Catholic and Protestant soon became three and a Baptist, right? Who, and then, and then now we have like 35, 36,000 different denominations. Uh, there's a, it seems that there's a purposecuity about how we interpret scripture. Um, and curiously, like scripture doesn't tend to have easy resolved circles. Like there's, there's very much like, 
Proverbs tells us if you if you if if you do good, if you obey the Lord, it will go right with you. And then you read the book of Job and it's like, have you heard of me? <laughs> right. And it's just like they're honest questions that are not easily resolved. Um, and I think naming that is is so key. I'd be curious, like again on the authority piece, because we kind of like hinted at this before. Um, where does authority rest for the average person these days? Like, because I think at least for Lutheran, as it evolved in Europe, it was very much the nation state. Where might it rest these days? Like, where do people get their sense of identity, longing, and truth? Well, if you let me go total history nerd on you for a second, <laughs> something really interesting happened when the Protestant Reformation began to interact with the American democratization impulse. Um, there, there's some historians that have done really amazing work at documenting this, but basically in the 10-year period around the, the American um, Revolution, that there was a kind of throwing off of the authority of the monarch, the authority of the, the previous state. And, and as that impulse kind of took root or that, that philosophical impulse um, spread immediately it became the questions were raised very quickly for Christianity itself <laughs> like who who has the right to tell me what to do as a Christian um, and and so the, there was a kind of relocation of you know the Protestant Reformation would have said the authority is in scripture but when that starts interacting with the American context it's not just scripture but it's the individual reading scripture privately right that there's an individualization of mm. how scripture is held um, so where is the authority? Well, I don't think we say this out loud very often, but in very practical terms, it tends to lie with the individual. Yeah. Um, the individual with a Bible on his or her knees trying to figure out what it means. And um, that's a big shift even from what the Protestant reformers imagined they were doing. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. And is that a, a shift that that we embrace or resist? I think that's what we're going to discover. Shauna, like, I'm going to throw it over to you. Like, how... Where are we going here with this? Like, what, what's your sense? Yeah, I'm just uh, thinking about that course correction, right? The recalibration. And if we're indeed in that time, and it does seem necessary, was that the driving force behind creating this document? And it's not just a document you created. You like markers and like really powerful markers of what we're calling a new reformation. And so was that... Was is this document, these markers, these statements, is that kind of an answer to this need for some sort of recalibration or course correction? Yeah, well, this this document that the Theology Circle's been working on really came out of a direct response to a Jesus Collective gathering we had in May, um, where a lot of us who have been involved in the Jesus Collection Network got together and, and were talking just about faith in the life of the church. And there was both a sense of common energy, like I, I would say like a general reforming energy to say something needs to change like there's a bigger more hopeful vision of christianity that we're longing mm. for um but also a lot of confusion or or difficulty putting language on what is it exactly yeah. <laughs> like we're here because we sense we share something but what is it we're sharing like how would we mm -hmm. very succinctly articulate the shifts we think need to take place um so i came back from that gathering and talked to the theology circle and said we we really need to help people like put some fingers on what what we're sensing but but struggling to put language to um so so we can begin to kind of deliberately move <laughs> toward mm. this fuller vision we're hoping for so that's the space it came out of what was that feeling of general longing across many pastors and leaders um mm -hmm. but the, the question of what is it for specifically mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, that's good. Um, and I want to ask you, what is the hope? Um, I know like you, in your context, are preaching through these statements, which I think is powerful. I think it's, an, it's a valuable resource. It kind of feels flighty to even call it just a resource. I just I feel like this is really, like you said, like this is, this is language that we've, we've needed to get out there. So what is the hope? Before we get into what each of these five markers are, what would you say as the one who leads the theology circle, who really kind of spearheaded this effort um, in your dream world? What is the hope for getting this information out to the broader audience? Well, I'll tell you what mine is, but I'm hoping after I do, you guys will tell me for each of you, what is the hope or the dream that brings you to this, this project and this conversation? Um, for me, it's, it's a big hope. It's a movement. Mm -hmm. hope. I, mm -hmm. I, hope for a, an emergent Christianity that is not fringe 
Christianity or sectarian Christianity, but it is is a fresh vision uh, of Christianity to to sweep across the world. Um, I I feel like we are just on the cusp of it. Like we're we're so close to being tipped over. Um, things are coming apart, and questions are are being asked that that need to be asked. Because before you can rethink, you have to unthink some things. Um, but I I dream of a Christianity that is as holistic and as radical and as beautiful as I think Jesus of Nazareth taught it. And I, I think we've we've drifted away from some really important aspects of that, that vision. But the point of articulating this for me is not to prop up an institution or start a new program. It's to fan the soul of Christianity mm-hmm. into brighter flame, to, to, to rediscover that, that kind of beating heart in Jesus mm-hmm. that, that is at the core of it all. Um, so that's a big, big hope, but that's my hope. It is. It is a big hope, but I want to piggyback on that and say, to me, I see this kind of like as a vision casting moment, like just like, mm-hmm. this is what Christianity should and can be. Like, this is what we can be known for instead of all the other yeah. stuff, right? Like my hope is even maybe bigger than yours that people wouldn't have to deconstruct this years yeah. down the road. <laughs> yeah. This would just be something that we embody because it looks so much like Jesus. And I, I know that can sound a little arrogant, but that in a nutshell is what I'm hoping for, that we really... Um, we're really shining a light on who Jesus was and how Jesus would want us to act and behave in the context in which we're in, in 2022. So Paul, anything yeah. you want to say to that before yeah. we get into number one? Yeah. Yeah. I'll say my hope is, well, I, I think I've often said that if Jesus collective didn't exist, I would feel compelled to invent something pretty similar with, with some of these amazing people around the table Partly because like when I look at my kids and and I think about like where they're going to be in like 50 years and their kids in 50 years, like if there's going to be a generation possible my, that my grandchildren will follow Jesus, I think it's worth it's worth every effort because mm-hmm. nothing's more compelling than Jesus. And I think there's a side of me to that that recognizes that even in a moment of radical deconstruction, and there's two ways I, I primarily understand that. One is like kind of, um, I would say like a demolition, like let's blow up the house. That's one way you can go about it. But the other way is like renovation, and yeah. which is yeah. like a dear term to my heart because like we bought a house in 2020 and my wife and I renovated it. And it was like, let me tell you, it was hard work. Like I wanted to burn down my house at some point. It was just so <laughs> painful because we were living in the house while we were like <clears throat> putting in a new bathroom. And then we discovered knob and tube wiring and we had to like, I literally had to rewire my whole house. So in every room in my house, I had like these, like these holes where I was punching through and I was like putting my hands up into this house. And like, I got to know my house quite intimately. I'll just say that. And, and like, it was this crazy process of like painfully putting the pieces of this house together. And then like, it took us about six months till we even felt like we could sit down on a weekend. And I just remember it was Christmas day. We got done. We got done painting and we sat down and it just felt so good to have a house. And I, and I kind of learned through this experience that as much as I wanted to just like walk away from this problem, I found um, you have to live somewhere. And like, and, and my kids need to live somewhere. And I'm thinking more like a house that follows Jesus and their kids need to. And I think that's why I need hope for them. That it's not even just about me and my personal experience that I actually want them to encounter something that's viable and, and not shallow, but something that has uh, a depth and a, a reawakening of, of an imagination that, that I just only see in part. Paul, I love that metaphor so much for a couple of reasons. Like, I feel like it really, it makes clear we're not building a new house. that's not what this project is like it's it's not a project of creating something from scratch the bones are there Mm -hmm. like the the structure is there i had i had great bones but that the bathroom i had in my old house my tub was rusted and when i sat on the toilet it did that squeaky side to side thing and i thought i was gonna fall through the floor and honestly when i ripped up the boards i was like i could have fallen through the floor it was crazy so like yeah there there are things that need to change absolutely but the bones are good 
Yeah. That metaphor also makes it clear there, there are different classes of problems, right? Some of what you've got in renovation is just bad wallpaper. Like sometimes yeah. Christianity is just bad at presenting itself, right? And that's mm-hmm. not like deep work. Like you just got to like rip off the ugly and and try it again. Um, but sometimes what happens is the ground beneath the house shifts, mm. right? And, and And when the ground shifts, you've got deeper work to do in order to reinforce the foundation so that it can stand mm-hmm. for the future. So so there are, there are levels of work in this renovation project. Well, let's head into our five statements, five axioms. I don't know if we've settled on what to call these, but like, I'm sure <laughs> our, our viewing audience, we're probably going to publish these on our Jesus Collective website. Uh, I'm promising that I haven't actually checked into that, but hopefully it'll happen. <laughs> Let's call it today the five renovations. <laughs> okay, the five renovations. I like it. Let's do I it. Like it. Let's do it. So this is our like. I don't know if you guys have ever renovated a house, but like you have your plan. Like you look at like I look at my kitchen floor right now, and I'm like, I'm coming after you, right? Like I have a list of things I want to do, and this is our list. Yes. <laughs> All right, take us away. Do Do you want to walk us through each of these statements? Do you want to read them, Megan, and then provide a bit of. Uh, context will kind of engage with questions along the way. These hey. are thick statements. So I'm warning everybody from the outset. <laughs> we're, we're packing a lot of words in. So um, the, the first statement, the, the first renovation is um, God always looks like Jesus mm. and all scripture is properly read through him. That's a big one. So unpack that for us. <laughs> so in the scope of projects where I said from, from wallpaper to foundation work, this one is the foundation work, right? Like everything else, all the rest of the renovations are useless if this one doesn't get in place. Um, because what we're talking here is about very foundational questions around truth and the character of God. So we can talk about the dilemma that's occurring in this regard in all of these, we could talk partly about what this looks like in the church and what it looks like in the secular world. But for me, at least, where it, where it starts in the church is we have a, a whole lot of, as you said, 36,000 denominations or something out in the world. We've got a whole lot of Christians around the world um, who are praying to the same God and reading the same book and yet coming to wildly different conclusions about what that God is like. And we're in a situation, I, I'm sure you guys can can speak to this, of like Christians sitting in rooms with each other and, and looking at each other and be like, are, are we even talking about the same person here? Like how, mm. how, how have we come to such fundamentally different conclusions about who God is? Um, when we're all even claiming to be reading and interpreting the same book. And I'm curious, like, is this something we see in the text itself, right? Like, like, I think you can get a very different picture if, let's see, started with the book of Joshua from a particular nationalistic reading. You'd be like, well, this is clearly about the United States and our manifest destiny um, or, or, like you can read and, and interpret in multiple ways there. And what I hear you saying is that Jesus brings a sort of particularity that doesn't easily allow that. Is that a fair assessment or? You're moving toward the answer. Is that? (laughs) Well, maybe. I guess I'm asking like when we picture God as Christ-like and in God, there is no un-Christ-likeness. What does that do for us that our previous model was not doing? Well, at least I would, I would articulate the question as saying, I think a lot of people have the idea that the Bible is sort of like a puzzle Mm. and Puzzles only fit together one way. <laughs> so if you got a group of people in a room and sat around a table and worked at the puzzle, like 100% of the time, the same picture would come out. Um, but in reality, the way it works is more like Legos. Like Legos lock together and, and depending on what you do with them, the shape that emerges can look radically different. Um, so, so the question we're, we're really grappling with here is like, is one way of constructing those pieces better than another? Like, are there ways of of putting together those pieces that are more or less accurate of who God is? And to kind of move toward the answer, like I would say as a Christian, I, I believe that Jesus is the cover on the box that shows us what the design actually looks like when the, when the pieces are locked together in the best possible way. Um, so so there are other theoretical ways then through Jesus to decide what the design should be. Um, But all combinations are not equal, right? All arrangements are not equal that Jesus has come precisely for this reason to show us how, how the pieces are designed to come together so that we get an accurate picture of who God really is. That's a great analogy, Megan. I just want to remind, because I see Paul's brain spinning. It's moving. Yeah. He will 
spend a couple of hours on each one. If we, we can't do that. We have to, we, we have to ask the why that. here. That's right. That's and, right. and dear listening so. audience, just so you know, we're unpacking each of these five statements in the weeks to come on the podcast. So uh, you're going to hear more about this in, uh, in the yeah. weeks to come. So this is like, think of this is like a flyover, like an introduction of these statements of these renovations um, from Megan Larissa Good, who kind of helped us, like I said, steer the, the team that worked on this. And so if you're wanting to know more and dig deeper, great, stay tuned because there will be further podcast episodes that will take each of these one by one. I, I just want to say, but wait, there's more, right? Like wait, this is the moment more. in the info commercial, yes, right? Infomercial. There's got to be a better way. <laughs> My job today is to make you all feel the pain, and Paul and yeah. Shauna are going to solve it for you later. <laughs> it's coming. Well, not it's just coming. us, our guests. No, We're going to put we all the people. pressure on them. Yeah, we have people who are going to do that. All right, so I'm going to just gently nudge us along to bring us to the next one. Against renovation, uh, which is to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. What's that mean? Tell us, <laughs> Megan. There's so much in that one. <laughs> I know. It's and Megan, you know this to be true. Like that was a longer statement. We tried to make it a shorter statement. It became longer again. It's just yes. so uh, maybe like I, I heard talk of the future. Now, is there a purchase of a DeLorean where we get to like go to the future and then we come back from the future? Is that what what's going on here? Tell us. We're, we're really amping up the level of nerd by the second here. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm here. You're here. No doubt. We're going to make it happen. Well, let, let me try and make the, the subject we're discussing here simpler. Um, what we're really talking about this line is, is essentially what is the basic Christian story? Mm. Like what is Christianity about? Um, yeah. Most people, if you're asked to describe the Christian story in a phrase would say Jesus saves, right? Mm. But, but saying Jesus saves doesn't yet get us to the substance of what does he save us from and what does he save us for? Um, so so what, it, what is the essence of this story we're telling? Um, so let's talk church and then let's talk talk secular <laughs> because mm. both both the church and the secular world have versions of of the salvation story they're telling right um in in the church a lot of people not not all christians but a, a lot of people in recent decades have been exposed to a view of salvation that has a, a very particular flavor <laughs> um it's oriented toward the future right like some like life will be what it will be but someday it will be better um, because I, I have been saved by Jesus. Um, it's a version that's very individual. I, I'm saved as I pray this private prayer in my heart, and that changes my status before God. And so I'm good, right? It, it's, it's very individual. And it has very little to say about either the purpose of existence or the kind of crisis we all see unfolding in the world itself, mm. right? That it, It's a personal transformation oriented toward the future, but stays within a fairly narrow band. Um, and I think there, there's a reason a lot of us have been begun feeling tension around that version of the Christian story. Is that really what Jesus came proclaiming when he walked around saying the kingdom of God is near? Mm. Um, near as in far off after you die? Like, what's a kingdom if it's only just me? <laughs> so, so clearly there's some major friction between the story that Jesus was telling and the invitation he was making and, and the ways that we have re-narrated <laughs> that, that story for ourselves. Now, in the world, there's a whole different story, right? <laughs> right? That, that, that story of salvation that um, Christians have been telling internally has very little traction out in the world these days. Um, and I guess I, what I would observe is the kind of gospel narrative in the world is the story of, you know, self, to be saved is to become your most authentic self. Like we're all, we're all in search of a true selfhood. Um, and there's a you know, that, that is a kind of faith statement, right? This, this is the good that we're all seeking. There's a, there's a morality to it. We, we work together to remove as many constraints as we can from individuals becoming whatever their authentic self is, right? That's, that's a collective role is removing the constraints. But I, I think what I would say about that as a, as a salvation story, particularly in the Western world right now, 
is we we could see some of the good that it produces. Like nobody wants to go back to this world where women have to stay in the kitchen barefoot. <laughs> no one wants to go back to the world where tattoos are a sign of evil. Um, like there's there's good to the shift that has occurred here in, in allowing more space for us to be ourselves. Um, but it's a very narrow kind of good, right? Mm. Like, like being able to be your own self doesn't yet get you to community. It doesn't get you to belonging. It doesn't yet get you to meaning. Um, mm. And I think we haven't culturally been able to name that out loud, but what we, what we are experiencing is the consequence of this narrative, which is millions of incredibly lonely people wandering around feeling anxious and depressed and like existence has no meaning. Um, becoming their authentic selves has not gotten them what they're actually craving or at least taken to the point of connection. So it's, it's too small a good, I think, for what humans actually long for. I, I appreciate that you that you're naming that tension that yeah especially our, our desire for autonomy and 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 individual like self-guided stories um it has led to a lot of lonely people and I know like this we can't unpack this today but I know you have a lot to say about loneliness but just briefly like why is that a problem why is loneliness a problem just in a, like a few sentences like what is it actually doing to us right now and why does community matter? Why do we need that as humans? I mean, I would call loneliness the, the epidemic that is literally killing people across the Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, we can talk all day about the health research and everything about this, but but I think it, it's what's at the root of so much of the spiking anxiety rates and depression rates of, yeah. um, you know, we can we can be free, but if we don't know how to be together, if we don't know how to communicate or connect or to love each other, um, humans don't flourish as desert islands <laughs> and everybody being their authentic self on their own island in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, that that is not a recipe for human joy or flourishing or good mm-hmm. socially, individually. Um, it's funny because that just feels so obvious, but we're really having trouble saying that out loud, that yeah. we, have, we have constructed a world that isn't going to get us what we want. <laughs> Yeah, because when we throw the individual, the worst thing you could do is challenge someone's individuality. And it's almost like as pastors and church leaders, we have to figure out a way for people to want to individually choose to belong, recognizing that comes with a cost, recognizing Mm -hmm. that that will shift us. And I think that's part of this renovation we're suggesting is like, there's a better life to be offered by belonging but it's going to, it'll probably cost, right? Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not an easy fix. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, what we're saying in short is that that Jesus came to save the world. Yeah. <laughs> to create the good world that we all sense should be. And, and that's a, that's a much bigger project than just rescuing one individual for the future. It's a, it's a planting of the ideals of heaven here. It's, it's a remaking mm-hmm. of everything we know, which includes a communal element and a new way of living and all sorts of complex and beautiful pieces. Sorry, Sean, I like, I know you're going to transition us on here again. Uh, But I just want to say it just occurred to me too, that like we hold some values and tension in in our society. And I think one of our values that we hold in tension is this longing for justice, social Mm -hmm. justice, real justice, racial justice, economic justice. And yet, like the framework of individualism is never going to solve that. Like you actually need a community to to combat all sorts of brokenness that that way, right? Like it's. I think yeah. the successes we have seen in culture previously have largely come about because of deep communities that steward a truth rather than just ideas that individuals assent to. But anyway, next, next reformation. I want to statement. say more, but I'll let it go. Yeah, I know. This is I'm getting more excited the more we're talking about this. Reformation I'm just number three. Say, no doubt. I'm just gonna say I really love the way you said it, Megan. It's too small a good. Like mm. there there is a bigger good out and 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 settling for just that self-actualization is that too small a good. Belonging together is perfect. But we're going to number three. Going to number is, three. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. What the heck are you talking about? This one is in a lot of ways at this moment, at least in a North American setting, the easiest one to talk about because the problem is so in our face all the time. Obvious. (laughs) So obvious. I mean, anyone looking at the church right now, a big part of the the conversation happening in North American context around the church is, is related to 
the very public attempts of a lot of Christians to seize control by force, right? To, to through whatever mechanisms we can kind of grasp hold of, can forcibly conform the world to the shape that we think it should be. Um, now that project naturally creates a lot of resistance if what you're dealing with is a, a group of other people who don't have the same vision of what the good is. Um, so it's a very difficult conversation for the church to have, right? If, if we have some vision we think is compelling of the world, but we have a question of means, like how, how do we get there? What, what's going to get us to the end that we're dreaming of? Um, and, and right now there are a lot of Christians that are choosing means that seem to be making Christianity more difficult to access <laughs> or mm. um, I mean frankly just making Christianity look bad right like a lot of us are feeling embarrassed by Christianity for some of these reasons um, but it's not just a Christian problem or a church problem because we're, we're also experiencing that tension in a cultural environment that is highly polarized um, where, where everybody is in this intense power competition for their vision of the good and, mm -hmm. and where people across the board, religious or not, are having harder and harder times knowing how to talk to other people who don't agree with that vision. Um, so, so how, like, if we all agree that evil exists, even if we don't agree what that evil is, mm -hmm. like, what kind of means are we going to use to combat it? Is, is it possible to, to go into the world with strong convictions, prepared to address what is distorting, what is deceiving in creation, but in ways that do not require slaughter, either verbally, physically, I mean, the many forms that violence takes. Um, so this has its North American expressions, but you know we have members in our theology circle from different countries in the world who say this is such a major problem where they live, you know, in African countries, this, um, often is manifesting right now as physical violence, mm -hmm. right? Like group against group competing for their their vision of the good. Um, what is what does Jesus speak to that situation? <laughs> is there a way out of this this kind of death loop <laughs> that we all seem caught in right now? That's the question. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want you to uh, again, we can <laughs> as much as we want to, we can't like, oh, go super deep um, and unpack this all the way, but that uh, through the power of suffering love, um, I want you to talk about that a little bit more because this, I think we know this, I think we're supposed to know this as believers, like this should be an aha, but it does seem like even within Christian circles, people are like, you know, if I just get a bigger stick or a bigger megaphone or, you know, say it with more, the most conviction or, and it's like, we're, we're screaming across one another still physically literally <laughs> um yeah so can you just talk about that a little more megan please i mean let's name it like we're we're just struggling to believe that jesus meant what he said and what he demonstrated mm. right jesus came into a, a context of intense evil and oppression like where his people were crying out in all sorts of ways um, the, the pain of that experience. And Jesus cared deeply about suffering. He cared deeply about all these forms of human suffering and oppression. The question was the means, like what is the means by which those things are going to become undone? And Jesus is very explicit about this. Like this is one of the dominant themes of his teaching. And I think it says something about how vicious human blind spots can be that we've overlooked this for so much of the history of the church because it's all over the place. Um, but Jesus, from, from start to finish in his ministry, both taught God's, God's overcoming of evil, God's care for suffering, God's hatred of oppression, and he taught the means by which God is saying evil will be broken. Um, and he taught it through enemy love. He mm. taught it when he told his disciples to put their swords away, and he taught it when he told them, if you want to be with me, pick up your cross and follow me. This is what power looks like. Like, I'm giving you power to defeat evil, but this is how it's going to look. And man, do we not want to believe him. <laughs> man, no, because it, it costs no. way too much. Like, yeah. this isn't an easy sell. Like, no. uh, who, who wants to sign up for suffering is like that we avoid suffering in our context. And so, like, I think someone in, in like a secular, like, in the culture, it's like we gear our lives to it to insulate us from any form of discomfort right it's like if 
if the AC is not working just just the way it should, it's like our lives are in chaos. And I'm like, you're calling us to suffer. Jesus is the worst marketer in history. Yeah, <laughs> I would say that. Over and over, follow me and prepare to die. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, follow me and... Which is why we, we have to understand this within the, the narrative arc of the whole Jesus story, that, mm. that the paradox is that the, the power expressed in the cross leads to resurrection. Mm. And it's, it's only when we're deeply rooted in that narrative that we can dare find the courage for what Jesus is actually calling for. I wonder if this third axiom, this third renovation is really a call to trust and faith in that way. Mm. Mm. And, and, we're not going to work without it. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's, that's no. a shift. It truly is. And I can say in my context, this is something we get the most pushback on. Is this enemy love, this, you know, yeah. dying to self. Um, <laughs> it is something we get the most, because people are always, but what about this? They're, they're looking for the reason, the excuse in which they don't have to walk this out. Yeah. Maybe because like suffering tends to really go at our egos. Well, yeah, there's that. And I think, and I'm sure you experienced this to your own um, degree in Canada, but I know here we're all in America, we're all about independence and, you know, taking care of things, doing it our way and no one's going to tell us anything. And yeah, it's all, it's a whole thing. And I live in Minnesota, but I'm from the South and it's, you know, God and country. And it's like, God has empowered and anointed us to by force, take Mm. the world over for him. And it's that's that's not so much canada we're just we kind of get to uh be your awkward cousin to the north of you that's well thanks for taking care of that that's kind of what canadians are about and we say sorry and and we have peacekeepers but i mean it's it's a different world living um in an empire and and i would say like when that language of is so wide-reaching it shapes a person very similar to these reformation, these renovation statements we're making, you create a culture and the culture itself moves all sorts of conversations, which brings us to our next statement of renovation. Number four, take it away, Megan. (laughs) Uh, Statement number four is the Holy Spirit empowers us to partner in God's work of reconciling all things. Yeah. All things. All things. Yes. I love it so much. <laughs> so you're gonna have to unpack this for us because part of me is just happy that you said the word Holy Spirit, right? Because often in Anabaptist context, my personal experience is like we're we're amped for the teaching of Jesus. It's but we're like, man, do we have to talk about the Holy Spirit sometimes? But I grew up in a Pentecostal context, so I'm like, let's hear it. But there's also the other side of the statement where it's like the reconciling of all things. So it's tell us more about what yeah. what you're communicating in this. Well, let, let's build Paul's anticipation by taking this backwards and starting with the reconciling. <laughs> so what we said um, two points ago, if, if the big Christian story is that God is in the process of saving all creation, right? God is in the process of heavening earth. That That's the good news. That's the big story. Um, at least the second question of like, do we have a role to play in that? <laughs> and, and the answer is that we have been appointed as ambassadors of reconciliation that God is offering the world. Like we have a role to play. Um, we, in some ways, as the people of Jesus become the bridges that others can walk on as they come back toward each other, right? God is, God is doing a work of closing all gaps, tearing down walls, um, restoring human relationships, restoring human systems. Like it, it's a holistic work of putting mm-hmm. things back together. And, and we have a role in that. Um, now the question is what kind of fuel is going to power that project? Mm. <laughs> and that's where you the need whole... some good, good fuel for this. Yes. <laughs> um, and this is where I think, again, to, to go back to kind of secular culture and, and the way that dialogue is happening, um, particularly in the West again, um, a lot of people have the idea that the ideals of liberalism are just going to enable us to tolerate each other across difference, right? Mm. We're going to be able to just create some kind of environment where it doesn't matter if we disagree and we just get it out of each other's way and live and let live. That There's kind of a secular narrative of that that has been going around for quite a while. Um, the problem is we don't have signs at all that any of that is succeeding. It turns out that the, the longer you live across these areas of deep this difference and distance, the more friction people feel and the more the, the cataclysmic reaction grows. And like, 
tolerance does not hold the world together, it turns out. <laughs> I wonder if there's a recent example in the last couple of years that is, um, you know, just illustrated this profound point. No, yeah. probably in Canada, but not here, Paul. I don't yeah, know no elections. No, no. Yeah. Don't know what you would mean. <laughs> don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, and there, there are elements, this is maybe a controversial statement, but there are elements in the Christian church who, to a certain extent, had bought into that secular narrative and felt like the best way they could represent the gospel of Jesus is by making tolerance the, the major virtue. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, executing Christianity as a kind of moral enterprise where we try and do everything we can to make reconciliation happen, um, which I take to be a very sincere effort, right? Like that they're aiming toward the right thing. They want to see the right goal. Um, the trouble is if all we've got is human beings standing behind other people's back, pushing them as hard as they can toward each other, like that's never going to work. Um, mm. People work like repelling magnets, right? The harder you push, sometimes the more they fly apart. Um, if, if this project is going to succeed, it's going to take more than human determination, right? This God understood and designed this from the very beginning as a, a spiritual project that is fueled by the power of heaven. Um, so, so if we're going to lay down our weapons, as we've said in the previous point, like we're taking the way of the cross, it's, it's not the way of the cross without a certain kind of power, right? It, it just is a, a different kind of fuel that is driving it now. And um, I, I think I, I will name that for those of us who have come to this conversation from Jesus-centered traditions, um, this is often the part of the conversation we're missing. Like we're engaging in the right project. We really care about living this Jesus life and, mm-hmm. and, and taking part in the mission Jesus is doing. But it, it's like trying to drive a car with no fuel, right? If, if you don't engage the spirit and, and learn how to be a vessel of this, this fuel that God designed to power it, um, you're just going to run, you're going to run out of gas really fast. Hmm. That kind of reminds me of, I, saw, I listened to this interview with Richard Rohr, where he was talking about his work of, he has this center called contemplation and action. And he was asked, what's the most important word in your, in your organization? And he said the word and, <laughs> right. Yes. And like this sense of like, I I could tell you countless stories of friends that got really like excited for the work of justice, really excited for for this reconciliation of all things. But the the well of receiving love, of being formed in a community uh, that's stewarding uh, the work of the spirit amongst them often lacked. And they found themselves just again and again trying to meet the world's needs with the wrong kind of fuel. And I, I hear in this like a, a deeper a deeper invitation to go to the places of 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 recognizing the the inadequacies of what we actually bring because i hear this if we're going to do this to the spirit it tells me i can't do it right well i'm realizing listening to you say that there's a there's a second component to it too it's it's the fuel that makes the result possible but the spirit is also part of what is necessary to keep us from being corrupted in the process of doing it yeah Right. Like, how do you hold yourself in a position of love in the face of evil and injustice? Mm-hmm. Right. How do you yeah. keep from being corroded in your own soul? <laughs> if the spirit's yeah. not engaged in that, you become what you're resisting. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. without without Jesus, without the spirit present in our midst, even our, our attempts at power with can get subverted into personal people's agendas. Like the witness of scripture is that we're not that great at bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven by ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, uh, that point you just brought out, Megan, because I know just personally, whenever, I mean, I I think any of us in any any of our contexts can say we have come up against, we've been face to face with some issues that we, we know aren't right. We know aren't what God would have for our community our you know, our state, our country or whatever, our, our people in our life. And we want to do all that we can to like shine light in that darkness. And what I've had to allow to, of myself to do is to be held by the Holy Spirit, to allow him to hold my heart. Because like you said, we could become bitter or just we could become beaten and broken down if we're not allowing that him to be that fortress for us. And so I, I just love that you brought out that aspect of, of the statement. Well, and let me just put a flag since we're talking about these as big movement statements that like my great hope and great joy in 
what I think is coming from this movement, it, you know, Pentecostalism is the fastest growing movement, yeah. movement in the world, that there's a spiritual energy to this that is just lighting people on fire. Like what would happen for the church if that stream was merged with the Jesus-centered vision of mission and yeah. living? Like that church is unstoppable. I mean, yeah. that is, that is an incredible thing to contemplate. Yeah, and that's certainly the case here in North America. Is the last I looked, the the churches that are really growing in North America tend to have this emphasis on the spirit uh, of leaning in. So that's so good. All I get world. excited as you share that. We have number five, our last statement of renovation, our last statement of reformation. Megan, mm-hmm. the drums are rolling in my head. Uh, this almost I'm almost imagining like a David Letterman top 10 countdown and number 10. Uh, but this is number five. And why don't you take it away? Let us know what the last statement of re- renovation is. The fifth statement is the church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines we draw. What I would say about this fifth one is that the first four statements are describing the kind of faith content of this Reformation movement, a, a who is God, what is the big project God is doing, what is our role, and how is it going to be powered, right? Like those in combination are our story. This fifth one is really about the question, how are we going to hold these things? Mm. How are we going to hold them? Um, we named at the start of this conversation that one of the things that happened coming out of the Reformation 500 years ago is that they, they came up with the, you know, a really important kind of handful of things that were were course corrections. Um, but what happened very quickly is is people began to disagree on on the kind of secondary pieces of that new vision and every disagreement led to another fracturing, mm-hmm. right? Like each each individual and leader splintering off and group after group after group. <laughs> and the question is, would it be possible to have a reformation, a, a course correction back into a fresh story? that doesn't result in the same endless fracturing so that 500 years from now we have 100,000 Christian denominations, right? Mm. Like, is that is that really the best we can dream? Or is there a way of going about this project that could reverse some of the potential damage? Um, which isn't to say that there there is never a reason for Christian communities or groups to to say like we're seeing something so differently that that perhaps this requires a different cooperative effort. Um, but maybe there's a way of holding our convictions um, that that allows the major things to be the major things <laughs> that mm. that puts the focus on a strong common center of the Lordship of Jesus, of this big story of what he's doing that allows us to recognize each other as Christian brothers and sisters and to worship together and to cooperate together, even while holding some places of friction and tension and and some places that our, our discernment thus far has caused us to see differently. I think honestly, Megan, if, if what you are saying were actually the reality I think non-believers or those who are skeptical or skeptics of the church, uh, they, they will see something they've not ever seen before. They are mm-hmm. used to the infighting. They're used to the bickering. They're used to the division. They're used, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about. They're used to that. And I think that's what they expect. Um, but if we were to walk this out, I mm-hmm. think that in and of itself would be transformational for people. Yeah. Well, and, and to even press on that more, it's not just what they expect from Christians, but secular organizations are having the same problem the church is, right? Where people come together for common causes that seem really important and then begin to have disagreements like mm. within that. And, you know, you end up in situations where it feels like everybody who is failing the, the purity test of what the, the party line is on all 50 things starts peeling off the side and you lose all the the energy around the core thing that you existed to do together. So this is a this is a real human problem. And you know, what if the church could make visible the reconciling power of God to, to hold things together even in the face of of that that kind of friction? Yeah, that I mean to me that would be a a really amazing part of our witness. To tie in like some yeah. of your work on loneliness, and we have to interview at a different time because I know you're working on that. Like modeling the kind of communities um that look different like you mentioned there that like so many of our communities are based around common interests 
And like, could we even imagine a community where people are welcome to the table uh, and not asked to, to put on the company uniform, uh, but given space in the way that Jesus shares table with, with everyone. There's no one Jesus won't share a table with. Uh, he yeah. shares it with Judas. He sh- shares it with Peter. He shares it with the tax collector. He shares it with um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Like that sort of, it seems to me that's the great, one of the greatest scandals of Jesus's ministry is his ability to hold table with anyone. Because um, I, I know like wherever I, you know, have been on my journey, um, whether it's been more conservative on one issue or perhaps more progressive on another, there's a sense where I only want the people at the table that look at, like me. And like, it's, it's, it actually is its own form of fundamentalism and um, something certainly we need to work on. So I hear that. Mm-hmm. In this. It's a question mm-hmm. I think of, are, are there ways that we can practice love and belonging that don't require complete agreement or control? Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes I think this is really a control issue at its heart. <laughs> so my friends and dear listening audience, uh, those are our five statements of renovation and, um, yeah. We want to ask the question of Megan. Uh, Sean and I were chatting about this beforehand. Uh, here's the question for you, Megan. If all of these fi- five statements were true, what would the global church look like? Like if this just became across the board, people really leaned into this. If we saw a new reformation around this, could you describe what that kind of church would look like? Am I allowed to hear your answers first since you guys were <laughs> thinking about it? Yes, as long as Shauna goes first. <laughs> Well, for me, it's pretty easy because it just circles back to the dream, right? Like, what is the dream for these five markers? And Mm. so if this were true within the global church, again, I just, I think we would see a bunch of Jesus looking communities going about bringing heaven on earth um, now, like, and, and being about partnering with father, son, spirit to reconcile all things into himself so that's with humanity with creation with you know with us and him spirit all of it i just think it would it would be heaven on earth and i will say again i don't think people will need to deconstruct it in another 500 years or so but that would be what it would look like for me the dream yeah yeah i would say if this became true i i would say so much of what would become true of the global church is probably a more framework that was more common in the early church um where where the church existed and did some of her best work from the margins and where the church was their witness was the martyrs i think of justin uh martyr's statements and and some of the early church uh, folks that that wrote about like their incredible love um, and sacrifice in in these spaces, I I would imagine that that we would do things that we couldn't do in previous iterations. Um, that there would be people that would be reached and people groups that would be reached in ways that would surprise us. Um, yeah, that's just some initial thoughts there. I mean, I often envision Christianity right now as a bunch of like little mountain streams <laughs> that are are flowing faithfully in their way um but are are narrow right now in their flow <laughs> um if if this is true if, if this kind of movement around a central story emerges it's, it's like all of those streams beginning to run back together and create this like mighty ripping <laughs> mountain river this giant cascade I think there are so many hopes I have for what would be possible if that happened. Um, one is that all these all these little streams that have been developing for hundreds and even thousands of years separately would discover each other's gifts and insights. That, you know, as, as we said earlier, like the, the Jesus people get the spirit and the spirit people discover the ethic of Jesus. And like everybody's richer for that. And I, I'm really convinced that most Christian, all Christian traditions, probably most at least, are are carrying crucial things hmm. in that same that the rest of the church needs. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not sure that we have seen for almost two thousand years a a fully, fully integrated Christianity as as it was designed. But we could, right? We could. I think that would involve a more integrated view of humanity as a whole, right? That like speaking to bodies and minds and souls, like, like speaking to the whole thing together, speaking to individuals and to communities. And there's a, 
it's like both the diversity of resources available would be greater because of having those Christian communities and streams touch each other. And also just the power of the flow as a whole, like you can do things when you scale that you can never do alone. So what if we really were doing this together? What if, what if you know, maybe not all Christians, but what if a sizable portion of the billions of Christians around the globe decided like there was a vision of, of Jesus that was compelling enough to be worth pouring ourselves collectively into some of the things that are clearest um, that he he stood for and called for. That's a that's a big hope too, but I hold mm. it. I like it, Megan. I like it a lot. Let it be, Jesus. That is, I like the grandness of the hope. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate the time and the thought that went into um, steering the team to come up with this document, to come up with these five statements, um, markers, renovations, whatever we end up calling them. I think it's going to be a really valuable resource, but so much more than just a resource is, is part of the hope. Megan, if people want to hear more from you or learn more from you, how can they find you? Or send Besides you a fruit basket. Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Send you a fruit basket. Please send her a fruit basket. Someone interviewing audience. I just want to see it happen. I'm a millennial. Send me avocados. Send um, her avocados. <laughs> Well, I would say that I am on social media, but not very active because it doesn't tend to make my life better. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen. Same, same. But the <laughs> best way to find me is probably um, through my church community, uh, Trinity Mennonite. We have a website. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I am currently preaching through the markers of the Reformation. I'm a little bit slower than we just went in this podcast <laughs> and, and broken down into uh, some more bite-sized pieces. But um, so if you're interested in hearing more about what this movement could look like and, and really what it's responding to in terms of the pains of both church and culture, uh, that would be the place to go. Um, I have a website, meganlarissagood.com and a book, The Bible Unwrapped. So those are places to find me working these days. So good. Thank you again for joining us today, Megan. It's been, it's been a treat. It's been good. It's been really good. Megan. Really good. Real good. I'm sure you knew that was coming. <laughs> Never heard that one. to say that. Oh my gosh. It's been Megan good. Yeah. It wasn't just a good podcast. It was a Megan good podcast. There we go. <laughs> oh my word. Oh my word. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Until next time.